And we're back with Behind the Buzz, a public fit theater company's occasional podcast discussing the thoughts and processes that go into the makeup of our season of plays and stage readings. We have arrived at episode number five of season number three, and I'm Joe Kukin, accidental producing director here at APF, and I'm joined by intentional artistic director, Anne-Marie Perreth. Yes, you are. <laughs> and today we'll be talking about Octavio Solis's Lydia, the third of our stage readings this season. In a little bit, we'll be joined by director Gigi Guisado and actors Jose Anthony and Daniela Azul Lopez. But first, I want to talk a little bit about the inclusion of Lydia in the season, and and that's on you, uh, Anne Marie. You know, we've done a couple of what I'd call, I don't know, slightly controversial plays. I'm thinking specifically about last year's um, Heroes of the Fourth Turning, and even Gloria uh, to some extent. And you know, it took a little bit of a debate. Uh, going back and forth between he ultimately decided to include those plays in the season. Um, but the decision on Lydia was almost immediate, right? And I'm not, I'm not saying it's going to be hugely controversial, but there are some uh, yeah. sexual themes and maybe mm-hmm. a couple of other things that may make some audience members uncomfortable. A couple of things to, you know, that maybe would have given us pause, but there was no hesitation at all yeah, when I it came even, to deciding on its inclusion. I didn't really see the controversy in terms of as a hindrance, right, when choosing the play. What I loved about the play was the poetry of the play. Yeah. I think it was the language that attracted me to the play. I also liked um, the opportunity for artistry in the theatrical moments in the play because there's magical realism. I um, enjoy the blend of um, the Spanish language and and the uh, English language in one play, and I like that... Audience members, many audience members are not going to understand all of the words, and I'm really okay with that. And I also like the transformation of Ceci in the beginning. It's a a real nice bait and switch right at the very beginning of the play, which really sets up the... Uh, the audience to really peer into the story immediately and, and get I, them hooked. And I'm going to say right now, uh-huh. uh, spoiler alert, we will uh-huh. talk about some things that that may um, that you may prefer. Uh, and when I say you, I'm talking to you out there in podcast land that you may want to keep <laughs> as secrets. Uh, so if you want to discover the play brand new with none of these spoilers, maybe hit pause now and come back in a couple of weeks and, and, and finish this podcast. But uh, when you're talking about the bait and switch at the beginning, there's a beautiful, a remarkable long monologue mm-hmm. from this Sessi character. And then you find out in the midst of this, this at the end of this long, yeah, that gorgeous monologue. Yeah, that been in this tragic accident. And is paralyzed and is nonverbal disabled. and disabled right. and broken in, in a huge way. Absolutely. And so then immediately as an audience member, you want to find out what happened. And that's an amazing hook. You used a phrase earlier that I want you to, to define for everybody, because maybe not everyone is familiar with the, with the term. Um, this, is a, this, this play is um, defined as a magical realism play. Can you define the term magical realism? Oh, damn. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, there are ideas of uh, another world in this play, there's a character in this play that might not be rooted in the reality of this play. I think that's uh, up for debate. Uh, and so um, I don't know if that's necessarily the definition of magical realism. Well, but just, it's, it, it's just it's, it's like when there's uh, an aspect of outside forces that are not based in realism that enter into the play. It's a play that presents a realistic view of the world that is injected with magical elements and sometimes blurs the distinction between the two of them. Yes, that's much better said. Like, and sometimes that's done with religion. Sometimes that's done with literal magic. Yeah. Fantasy Um, fantasy, elements. Yes. Um, uh, And so um, I'll let Gigi talk about that because I don't feel that I have the capacity to talk about that with as much elegance as she does, uh, and maybe well, let's we'll, bring them in. Let me yeah. int- let me int- int- introduce really quickly. Yeah, hi, hey guys. Uh, oh. I want to introduce the three of you. I'm going to just introduce all three of you, and then we'll jump right in with that question, Gigi. So put that in the back of your head. Sure. Everybody's <laughs> going to want an answer. I'm sure. I know her. She wants answers. Um, I do. <laughs> uh, Gigi Guizado is an international 
theater artist whose translations and original 10-minute plays have had productions and stage readings in San Francisco, Los Angeles, and London. There's that international (laughs) feel. Uh, She studied acting at the New Conservatory College of Marin, UCLA, the Actors Center, and earned her B.A. in drama from San Francisco State University. You folks may remember her as an actor in The Father out at Vegas Theater Company. And over here at APF in our stage reading of The Ghosts of Lote Brava, her translation of The Therapist by Gabriela O. I knew it. Yepes. Yepes. I knew I was going to screw that one up. Is published by Inti Press. Uh, She's a member of Out of the Wings Collective and is resident playwright at the Asylum Theater. Hey, Gigi, thanks for coming. Hi. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. Thanks for directing this show. Um, My pleasure. Jose Anthony is an actor in the production. Jose Anthony was introduced to theater at the age of eight. That's right. He saw his father play Barabbas in a church production of Passover. And like all good Catholics, he was hooked. <laughs> From the start. From the, here in <laughs> Vegas, uh, he started with the Rainbow Company and then moved on to work in various TV and film gigs, including national commercials with IHOP, uh, Big O Tires, McDonald's even. His one-man show, Tonio. That's right, Tonio. Uh, won the LVLT Fringe Festival Best Of in 2019. And you may have been there one night in February when he performed as the second actor in APF's production of An Oak Tree. Oh, wow. What, a, what an experience. We, we got to do a podcast on that by itself. <laughs> we did one. You missed it. Uh, <laughs> Thanks for the invite. Thanks for coming, Jose. Thanks for coming. And, fi- and last but certainly not least, Daniela Azul Lopez spent two years with UNLV's stage and screen acting program and fell in love with storytelling, a love that, that she hopes to continue to develop on the stage. And is this right? Lydia marks your first official performance in front of a live audience. That's correct. That's correct. My first time experiencing the stage wasn't really the stage because it happened during the pandemic. Oh, Zoom stuff, I bet. Yeah, yeah. So even though I got to meet my cast members, they all have to be from like six feet of a distance. Yeah. um, You know, we were all in our dressing rooms with cameras and we had rules about when we could open the door and how people would open the door so we'd have the masks on. So I'm excited to finally have real theater. (laughs) Real real theater, mask free. Yeah. Well, I want to jump back to to you Gigi and I want to uh, I want to talk a little bit about the idea of Lydia as as magical realism and that really you know I had this question written down but this this will do just as well um what was your first take on Lydia when you first when you first read it and I don't think it was with us I think you knew the play before we actually read it all together yes it was already uh, on my favorites list and I was so thrilled uh, to get the message from Anne-Marie asking me if I would want to participate in this table read of this play and did I know this play? Like, are you kidding me? <laughs> I've been waiting for this opportunity for over a decade. <laughs> wow, a decade. That long. When was when was Lydia written again? I think it was 2000, well, it was probably written in 2007. Yeah. Uh, 2008, it was um, having some uh, developmental um, performances. Yeah. Uh, and by 2009, it was having its West Coast premiere uh, at Marin Theatre Company. And am I right in, in saying that you uh, you have a relationship with Octavio Solis? He's a friend of yours. He is a very generous man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yes, uh, uh, several years ago, I was fancying the notion of having the opportunity to uh, put on uh, La Posada Magica, which is another of his plays. Yeah. And... Um, I got bold enough, cheeky enough to, uh. to friend him on social media. <laughs> and, uh, and to my surprise, occasionally he would, uh, you know, notice something I posted and, you know, comment or like oh. or whatever. And uh, when I posted that I was uh, delighted that this stage reading was going to happen, he commented. He saw that and he said, well, if I can help you, let me know. Nice. Mm-hmm. That's great. Yeah. Have we reached out? <laughs> yes, he, is yes. he helping us? <laughs> yes. Hey, I'll tell you. Thanks, man. It's awesome. Hey, we could do a post-reading uh, podcast. Sure. We like a quick interview. <laughs> yeah. Put that out there. Yeah. So, well, let's talk about magical realism a little bit. Is that a fair, um, uh, a fair definition of the genre of this play? Do you think? Yeah, I didn't disagree with anything that you, that either of you said. Um, oh, good. <laughs> I, I, um, my understanding of it. Uh, yeah, is that it's it's a style of writing that is largely associated with Latin America, although it is not. That's not the only place on on, on the planet that that writers 
use this yeah. uh, style, but it's a style where the supernatural or the unrealistic otherworldly elements are presented as if they're normal. Generally accepted by everyone. Ah, yes, that's cast. a good definition. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So like an angel could just come sit at the table here with us and have a normal conversation mm-hmm. and we wouldn't freak out about it. Mm-hmm. Gabriel Garcia Marquez is very um, famous for uh, making magical realism widely known. Mm. Can I? I want to. Can I switch to you, Daniela, really quick, as the sort of the baby actor in the in the group? Yes. We, we first read this play, as Jose reminded me, about a year ago yes. here in this very room, and you showed up mm-hmm. fresh-faced and, and sort of anxious. And I think you were an English major at the time. Is that right? No, actually, she was a theater major. I was a theater major, oh. um, but. I just have really good writing skills, so probably. Oh, is that's that what why. it was? <laughs> well, that's the impression I had. But what I also remember was that after you, know, after we read the play, sort of the first time for all of us, you really had a lot to say about it. It touched you in a way that surprised even me. I think it just seemed like it really you connected with the the play in some way. Can you remember? Back, and you were just telling us a story too about reading it the yes. second time on a plane. Can you just tell me a little bit about those two readings and how they how they affected you? Yeah, well, everything happened for me sort of magically. All of this process has been magical from creating the play and still working on it to, you know, meeting Anne-Marie through my, my classes at school and learning how to not just read a play, but thoroughly understand it and find the meanings behind the words and behind the actions and the, of the, the playwright. And so that's how I was able to meet you guys. I came here to my professor's house and we read this beautiful play. Um, And, uh, you know, I was able to discover through the pages initially just a basis of connection. I'm from El Paso myself. Oh, really? I should say the play is set in on the border town of El Paso, Texas. That's correct. Yes. And so one of the major components of this play is being Mexican-American and the divide that that can cause between Mexican immigrants and then Mexican-Americans who are maybe first generation and constantly battling whether or not you feel like you're truly American. Um, And then going even deeper with meeting Ceci, the character that I play, and getting to experience being a teenage girl again and those desires that you have and that develop your actions and form your image of what the world is like. And I think that that plays such a huge role in how poetic she is because she sees everything as grander than it is. And I remember seeing everything so magically in that form. So I was able to connect with her in that way as well. That's Yeah, that's funny you say that because I think it is her language that is the most poetic in the play. And it's the language that really... stuck out at me when we when we interesting first interesting dichotomy because she's the one that can't speak they can't speak yes. and is literally handicapped and, and trapped in, in a body after a, a horrific car accident yeah mm-hmm. yes. um, you used another phrase though and I'm gonna I'm gonna actually point this at, at, at you Jose you were talking a little bit about um, uh, just the issues of, of immigration and life on a, on a border town now this play is very specifically set in the 1970s early 1970s and uh, you know, Daniela was just talking about immigration is, immigration are, very present tense verbs, right? But this is a, a play that's sort of set in the past. Is it still as, um, I don't know, why is it still so so topical today? That it seems like it's almost an unchanged issue in some ways. For me, the story has a lot of uh, taboos, one starting with uh, machismo in the family for men. And uh, it's still prominent today, as well as, Immigration, illegal immigration, that, yeah. that hasn't gone away in the decades since the play is, takes place in the se- early 70s or so. And we're still kind of reacting to it in the same way, which I find really interesting. And, and you know, I was thinking on the way over here, one of the reasons I, I love this kind of play, like Anne-Marie said, a lot of audience members are not going to understand what, what's being said because a lot of dialogue is in Spanish. But I think Octavio Solis does a great job interpreting what's being told through the story itself with other characters. Yeah. Uh, and it's not just uh, uh, redefining what someone said in Spanish, that they say it in English. They say it in actions. They say it in poetry. They say, they say it in many different ways. And hopefully, if we do a great job as actors, we interpret that emotion with the Spanish words coming out of our mouth. Well, I, I would push back a little bit on, on what you just said, because I, my 
my my fluency in Spanish involves, of course, being able to ask somebody where the library is. But um, can I hear that example? Because no, <laughs> my accent is terrible. But but I remember during the I remember during the the very first read of the play that we did here, being so impressed with his very careful selection of when he would switch back and forth uh, in the languages. And I think he's very careful to select um, bits of language that are very easily understood just simply because of the context that he's already created in a separate language. So I think that the that the understanding of the foreign audience is, is actually probably going to be um, more clear than you may, may think. I, I agree. And, and what I was getting at was the fact that I, I love these, I love a Latino-based play on stage where a white audience can see that a family of this t- style isn't perfect. I think uh, there's a stereotype of uh, indigenous Mexicans all happy singing La Cucaracha. And, <laughs> and, and I love the idea that there's a dysfunctional family that uh, perhaps there isn't a happy, happy ending, a fairy tale ending. Is this a play about family, Gigi? Yes, ultimately it is a family drama. Yeah. Um, it, it draws on uh, Mexican-American culture. Uh, it's... it's you know, set in a Chicano family, literally on the border uh, between the United States and Mexico. But, but once you um, get past that, it's a family drama, and it has so many of the same themes uh, as other plays from from your body of work, from your mm-hmm. past seasons. You frequently put on family dramas with yeah. um, many of the same conflicts. They just uh, August Osage County, yes. Glass Menagerie, mm-hmm. right? Exactly. Those are sure. two family dramas. In fact, yeah. in, in some of my classes, the students ask, "You're always put. Uh, we're always reading about family dramas." I'm like, "Well, yeah, because they're mm-hmm. universal." <laughs> yeah. yeah, and um, things I know to be true, mm-hmm. and. Um, Oh, what was the one where the it rains constantly? <laughs> oh, <laughs> when the rain stops that's falling. falling. Uh, yes, both of those plays also remind me. Uh, I see similarities. Oh, that's really interesting. Why do you think, Gigi, that it's so set so specifically in the in the early seventies? Is it? I, I, well, I, I won't answer for you. I think it um, might have something to do with um, civil rights movements that were going on at the time. Yeah. Uh, the Chicano movement um, was picking up speed at that time from from what I understand and um, I think that might have something to do with it uh, because there is a search for for identity in in the play you know that's one of its themes um, am I if I'm if I'm born in this country but my roots are across the border am I Mexican am I Mexican enough yeah. for the Mexicans am I American enough for the Americans I'm born here and yet I'm not seen as American. What do I have to do to become American? And do I want to do all those things? How much do I want to assimilate? How much am I willing to assimilate? You know, these are a lot of questions that um, that exist within uh, the Latino community that, that people have to face. And I think with the civil rights movement, people... Em- Embraced and pushed back against assimilation. Well, and, and it took until the early '70s, I think, for the for what was what was known then as the Chicano movement to attach itself to the civil rights movement. I think they were excluded for a long time, and it was a sort of blacks-only movement until about the early, you know, late '69, '70s. It started to really pick up and and start moving towards the the Latin community. Is that fair? I'm not a hundred percent sure. Yeah. Um, but well, it sounds right. I'm <laughs> <laughs> stating it, then it's right. I made a tremendous career out of sounding right a, a lot. I actually have a question, and I don't know if you know the answer to this either, but the playwright uh, seems to be in our age group, and I feel like uh, oftentimes in plays, he, uh, a playwright will have himself represented in a character, and I think Misha is that, is that character because he's the poet, and uh, I am a child of the 70s. He's probably a child of the 70s, and so he's writing about something that he, he knows about, maybe. I think that definitely was my first impression, for sure, is that uh, I, I haven't asked the playwright, uh-huh. if he is one of the characters in the play, but but my impression is that that yes, that the playwright would have been the age of Misha around the time that the play was written, and probably does identify with that character, but I I don't know that for sure. But there's something to be said. I mean, that makes so much sense to me because there's something to be said about. Um, th- 
fighting against the notion that this playwright must speak for all Latinos. Like this is a playwright that speaks for an entire culture and that you're some sort of monolith that this one playwright can write about, as opposed to writing a play about his experience growing up. He grew up in El Paso, growing up mm-hmm. on, in a border town, growing up with a family of, of diverse opinions and diverse experiences. Um, to, so it's probably easier to do that and write about your own experience and write about your family than suggest that you are somehow writing for this huge cultural yeah. monolith. Yeah, no, no, I... I agree with you that that would be impossible to do. We are yeah. far too um, diverse mm-hmm. a group. However, uh, we can see ourselves reflected on stage when we see this play. It's so funny that I, I hear in politics, of course, in politics, people talking always about the black vote, the Latino vote. No one ever talks about the white vote. You know, we are somehow given um, a, a pass when it comes to voting in one big block as a, as a monolith, right? But, but we, we well, the, the Latino vote, they will, of course, vote in this direction. The black vote, they will, of course, vote in this direction. It just strikes me as absurd to take a collective like that of, of an entire culture and suggest that it is one, um, one thinking thing. And even in this play, to, to bring it back to the play— there are a number of different viewpoints and characters and perspectives within this one family. They don't all agree. Mm-hmm. They don't all share yep. the same um, values is the wrong word. Perspectives, I think, is a, is, a, is a fine word, even though they come from the, the same family. And you, Jose, you play a father with a very specific perspective that's probably different from anyone else's in the play. Is that fair? Uh, I would say uh, Claudio is Claudio is probably the only character that doesn't want to be in America. Yeah. He wants to go back to his hometown, his roots. Yeah. He was forced here by his wife. <laughs> <laughs> and it happens a lot. Not everybody wants to follow that American dream. You interpret that in Mexico as a whole different thing. Uh, when, when you go to Mexico, people think that you have it so well off here. When on the, on the contrary, a lot of my family members that live in poverty have it a lot better than we do. They don't live check to check. Their lifestyle is completely different. Huh. And I think Claudia wants to uh, reconnect with that again. Huh. Does that does that resonate with you at all, Daniela? Yes, it does. I've actually had family who, well, my very, very close aunt who lived here for 10 years. And contrary to my mother, who was able to find her way in the United States, my aunt lived in a world where she didn't have any medical care. She lived huh. in constant fear of getting pulled over because that could ruin everything that she's been able to build. And it just came to a point where she was spending time here for a dream that she just couldn't achieve. So she went back. Huh. She went back to Mexico. Um, that's that's weird. Uh, some people's American dream from, from experience, from family members. I, I know cousins who who crossed over illegally just to come and buy, uh, get enough money to buy appliances. I know some people who bought property, build houses just to go back. That's their American dream. It's not necessarily setting up roots here, uh, even though sometimes you, you got no, your kids have no choice but to stay here because you can't, you can't grow up here in America and then go back as an adult to a country. Then you're fresh. You're, you're starting all over. You're doing what your parents did here. And it doesn't it doesn't sit right. I think that's why some uh, some first generation American born kids like myself, they strive to uh, speak with less of an accent. I, I, I didn't study my culture till just recently. I didn't know there was plays like this. I set out to be an actor, not to do stereotypical roles because everything I ever saw was was uh, uh, gangster roles or, or, oh, wow. or cartel drug roles. Yeah. And, you know, of that kind. Which aren't really represented in this play, I don't think. I don't think those no, characters are stereotypes. No, not at all. Not at all. Are... That's what I mean. I, I got a chance to read with um, uh, Ghost of Lote Bravo, and that was probably the first uh, Latino-based play that I said, "Oh shit!" They, they, we there's play. I thought plays were uh, South Pacific and Death of a Salesman, <laughs> and, then, and then I you know started going. I remember right. that conversation. No, I, we had that conversation at that reading where you 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 told me you said you didn't realize that these plays had been written, that they were out there, that there was a. I think what you said was I didn't realize there were plays for me. Yeah. Yes, that's exactly what it was. I, I, you know, when I did plays with Rainbow, uh, I was uh, a farmer or a, or a secret service guy or, yeah. or a samurai, <laughs> yeah. things of that nature. So it was really great to see this. And Gigi's been really great at setting the tone and being a trailblazer with putting um, Latino characters on stage. A Public Fit is one of the few companies uh, out right now that is putting all Latino base, even if it's just a reading. I know the Asylum Theater put Complemento out last year, and that was great to be a part of that as well. 
Well, I think those voices are important. And I, ideally for us, it's completely selfish. We want to expand audiences. I think that, that telling stories um, to as wide a range of audiences as possible is really important. And we're just hoping to, to expand our I audience. I wouldn't say it's just about expanding audiences. Well, not just about that. No, this is a brilliant play. I think it's because we're curious, too. I'm curious about the culture uh, uh, of this family. I'm curious about um, the dynamics um, and the way they s speak to each other, the, the exchanges that happen in this family that are, are different from my own experience. And so I just want to understand people. I have like a, uh, a certain level of empathy for people that are, that are different than me. And, and that's what interests me. That's a really, that's a really good point. And it, ma it makes me think about, you know, I made a dumb comment earlier that I hope Diane has cut and that you guys <laughs> never hear this about Shakespeare, but just thinking about the idea of classics in, in theater, immediately I think about European playwrights and white playwrights. There has to be a huge body of classical um, uh, Latino plays that I have no connection to at all. And you're nodding, Gigi. I assume you know a vast amount of them because you're a translator and you spend a lot of time working with that material and bringing it uh, forward. Yes. There are many, many plays in many, many countries around the world that... Uh, that are classics in in their own countries, yeah. and only some of them end up getting translated. And then once they get translated, only a smaller group of those get published. And then of those that get published, even a smaller number of those get produced. What's the obstacle, do you think? Um, well, there seems to be some sort of... Um, People like to produce something that they are familiar with and that and that they know is going to sell tickets. Mm -hmm. When it's a translation, it's a it seems to be presenting a bigger risk. I'm constantly being approached. Um, oh, you should do a Christmas show, or you should do this kind of show, and I'm I'm like that doesn't really um, support the mission of a public fit. You know, I really like finding um, plays that are overlooked or haven't been produced because it gives an opportunity for new voices. Uh, and so, um, yeah, send those plays our way. <laughs> yeah, please do. And you've, yeah. and you've been, lately I know your, your grandfather was a, um, a very popular, famous playwright, and you've been spending a lot of time translating his works and, and bringing them back to the fore. Um, Jose mentioned Complemento, which they did out at a, a Asylum. That was your grandfather's work. Well, your work based upon your grandfather's work. I translated uh, his most famous play, yes, yeah. Complemento by Rafael Guisado. Uh, yes, is a classic Colombian play, and um, he wrote many plays. And yes, I there are there, there's enough work for me there uh, to just if I did nothing but translate his plays, that would probably keep me busy uh, for the rest of my of my years. Um, but I I take a break now and then and translate plays from. Uh, other countries. I translated uh, The Therapist by Gabriele Yepes. Yeah. Uh, that's a, a contemporary play, a very new play from Peru. It won Best Peruvian Play in 2019. Oh, we, we've talked about this. I remember you telling me about this. Is that, has that project completed now? Are you finished? No. Um, it's being produced by the Asylum Theater. Uh, we'll have two shows on June 24th. Oh, great. Uh, locally here in Las Vegas, and then um, touring it to London. It'll be at uh, Barron's Court Theater July 4th through the 8th. How did that come about, your, your relationship with the uh, stage reading company across the ocean. You've been doing a lot of stuff in London with a, a company that produces exclusively stage readings over there. Can you, how do you get involved with that? Out of the Wings Collective um, is not a theater company. It's, somewhat, it's more of a collective of theater artists that range from uh, theater scholars, people who are studying Latin American theater, uh, to uh, theater practitioners, different theater artists of all different kinds. Uh, we are, what brings us together is our common interest in translations uh, from uh, Spain or any countries where Spanish uh, and other indigenous languages in those countries are spoken, yeah. and uh, the same for Portuguese. Oh. Um, and so we put on a festival of staged readings uh, every summer. Uh, it's usually one week long. And, well, I... Exclusively in London? I'm sorry, yeah. exclusively in London? So yeah. far, yes. Uh -huh. um, and I got in contact with them because I was 
I wanted to translate my grandfather's work, but I didn't have any experience as a theater translator. I mean, I had plenty of experience as, a, as an actor, but not at translating. And so I had a lot of questions. You know, how, do you, how does one do this? How do you go about it? Uh, and who decides which plays get translated was one yeah. of my big questions. <laughs> so what do you have to look forward to at A Public Fit? Well, we've been talking with Gigi Guisado, Jose Anthony, and Daniela Azul-Lopez about Otavio Solis's Lydia. That stage reading will be presented on Friday, March 31st, and again on Saturday, April 1st at the Clark County Library on Flamingo Road. Our final main stage production, August Wilson's The Piano Lesson, continues our partnership with the College of Southern Nevada. That play will be presented in their state-of-the-art black box, beating April 7th and running through April 24th. And finally, this year, Audrey Cephalie's Alabaster will close out the season with a stage reading on June 30th and July 1st back at the Flamingo Library. And of course, there will be a new Behind the Buzz to accompany each and every one of these projects. So keep clicking your refresh button. Can I ask, has that experience, has that informed um, your work here with with Lydia? Because this is the first, we've had you in some readings, this is the first directing that you've done for us uh, anyway. And I'm wondering if that experience helped inform your approach uh, with Lydia. Well, it did to um, how to stage the reading. Yeah. Because I've been going summer after summer for these festivals of staged readings. I've seen a lot of staged readings. Yeah. Um, mm. And I've seen them done by professional directors with professional actors every time. And, you know, it's always a, a magnificent play. And so I, I've seen a, a wide variety of approaches. Mm-hmm. Um, Without of the Wings, we turn around a, a staged reading in a day and a half of rehearsal. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, Slightly different approach here. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. And I've been, an act- I've been fortunate to be an actor in a number of those and also to have my own translations um, uh, staged in, in those festivals. So I've seen it from a, a variety of perspectives. I haven't directed one there yet. Yet. But, yet. <laughs> but... Um, you know, APF has developed their own style, their own mm-hmm. way of, uh, a characteristic style of It's evolved. It's certainly evolved. Yeah, yeah. that uh, the hat is almost like a, it's much closer to being a, a production, a full production, than um, than the mo- more minimal thing, minimalist things that I've seen. Well, I want to ask you something about that, because we, when, so when we first started doing readings 100 years ago, um more often than not, uh, we would treat it, you know, almost scripts on easels, just mm-hmm. sort of doing a very straightforward reading. And we would have someone usually reading stage directions. And that has sort of evolved out of the process at APF um, for a number of reasons. We've started to stage them a little more cleanly and, and haven't felt the need for that. In this in this reading, in, in Lydia, you've brought that mechanism back. And you have a narrator now who, uh, I, I have to be honest, I'm not 100% sure exactly what she's doing, but I suspect that she's reading some stage directions and sort of informing the audience of, of moments. Can you talk about that a little bit, about why you've, you've reached back to that uh, uh, device? Sure. Well, uh, it was two, uh, twofold reasoning. Uh, one is that just to me, a staged reading, when I think of what is a staged reading, my default is that it's really pared back and really minimalist. Right. Um, so I wanted to to keep things as minimal as possible. And yet we have a set design and we have costume design and we have these other uh, factors that are um, a wonderful, uh, um, very luxurious <laughs> to be able to have these things. I think everyone out there in the podcast world understands when you say luxurious, you're thinking about a public fit. The way that's, it becomes synonymous, I think. <laughs> so I'm thinking to myself, okay, how do I, how do I have something that that's, got more uh, production values than a staged reading often has, and yet make it still feel like a staged reading. Yeah. And I thought, well, if you have an, a narrator, then that helps with, with that aspect, in, in my opinion. Also, when I, when I read Lydia, I'm aware that there is an element in the play that's outside the character's. Explain that to me. I'm, I'm missing your point there, I think. Well, maybe it has something to do with the magical realism. 
it's not, you know, a kitchen sink drama where everything is totally realistic and all the people do everything of their own volition. Oh, I get it. I see what you're saying. There's a sort of outside force, um, perhaps, that acts upon them that, that helps define the very nature and quality of the, of the atmosphere of the play itself. And yes. So you're using theater as an outside force as well. Yes. I see. That's oh, I interesting. That is interesting. So it's the artistry of how you're handling the magical realism in connection with theater, and it's like a blend of it. Yes. Is this something you guys have talked about in rehearsal, or is this a surprise to you? Mm-hmm. I, I, Jose is looking confused. Daniela, it seems to make sense. So, I, I'm always looking confused. <laughs> <laughs> it's, just, it's just the way you guys interpret it, or what you guys are saying. I, I, I didn't see it like that. It's just the I, I, I'm not an educated man. Uh, I'm from the streets of oh, Southern California. Oh, good lord. <laughs> okay, well then, shut up. So, Daniela, you. <laughs> That's no, not true. That's not true at all, by the way. You bring different things to the table. You just don't realize Absolutely your, not your, true. what intelligences you're bringing to the, into the space. I, I am bringing the taco truck for the reading. That's what I'm bringing. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, we'll talk about that after the reading. We'll see. I'll tell you what your brilliance no, is. Uh, we'll let Daniela explain no, it. Now I'm all hungry. Uh, what, does that, uh, what, what Gigi just said, Daniela, does that uh, um, re- resonate with you at all? It does. It does. And Gigi, well, she's explained it to us in simpler terms, which make it clearer to understand, which is why I was nodding. (laughs) Simpler terms so I can understand is what she's saying. And, And it's made it so that it's actually had a connection with our everyday lives. And so the way that she's evolved a character of the narrator makes it so much more than someone who's just sitting there reading. She's how Gigi has explained it is that she's fate. And oh, so, that's interesting. And I, I have to be clear: there is no narrator character in this play. This is a this is a a layer that you've added as a sort of, like I said, stage directions and and perhaps other things as well. But it's a it's a it's an added conceit. Yes and no. Oh, okay. Like true. There's no narrator character in the breakdown, right? In the breakdown, and I I wouldn't say that I consider our narrator a character. In the play. Okay. There are stage directions in the play, and I've chosen to not use props because oh, this thank is a you. staged reading. <laughs> thank you so much. I, it is, and I end up being the one who usually has to find those things, so thank you very much. <laughs> so in order to tell the story without props and without it being a full production, there's a certain amount of information that needs to be, well, yeah, needs to be conveyed. Yeah. So having the narrator read the stage directions is a quite a practical device of staged readings and i thought would be handy in this situation also because there is an outside force at play in the play there is an outside force in the play that is not named as a character within the play but it is referred to time and time again oh that's really interesting and so Reading the play, I have this awareness of this outside force, and I'm thinking, having a narrator who's outside the play, reading the words of what that initiates the actions of the characters on stage, yeah, kind of represents. Oh, that. I love that. I, that makes perfect sense to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that very much. Do you got it now, Jose? Yeah. No, I, I had it from the beginning. I, just, I, could, I wasn't going to be able to interpret it that way. I could, I could say it in Spanish, but I don't think your, your people are going to listen. Oh, yeah, do it. So lo que te está diciendo, Gigi, básicamente es que... No, and it is, but all I, all I got from me is... Uh, one, of the, one of the beautiful things I was talking to Amory earlier about this play is that it's the onion process where you just keep pe- peeling layers after layers. I, I had a, a, a breakthrough with two lines yesterday thanks to Gigi we dissected something we opened it up I wasn't seeing it like that Uh, I'm not an experienced actor per se as a uh, I don't have a degree. I Mine's is kind of just a school of hard knocks is kind of how I learn it. But I love that I'm still evolving and I'm still learning. And like Daniela, she's she's such a great little role model. She acts like it's her first play. I think she's lying. I think she had like a ghostwriting name or, or, or a different identity. She's been performing in disguise. We she's, think she's a secret genius Yeah, I too. think so yeah. too. She's, a, she's, a, she's an undercover professional for sure. <laughs> don't <laughs> underestimate yourself, Jose Anthony. You came to rehearsal 
with the history of and the poetry of Menudo. <laughs> okay. I did. It's, it's my contribution to the play, Menudo. Yeah. <laughs> Don't underestimate your, your value on the team, man. I, I, I just love experiencing Like She did mention it with Faith, and I like that. And uh, it's, it's new to me. I've never done a play where the, the stage... The stage directions are being read. Yeah. Uh, I've seen a couple readings uh, throughout my time over 20 years ago. CSN, I saw something. I, at Winchester, I saw something once. I, you can't even remember it. The first time I saw you guys was August Onsage County. Onsage, what is it? Onsage County? August uh, Osage uh, County. Osage County. See, I can't even say that right. <laughs> I want to say Orange County because that's uh, <laughs> where you're from. Yeah. <laughs> but what I'm getting at is uh, you guys start off that reading with the, uh, with, uh, what are those called? The music the, stands. Music stands. And they started reading, and and I believe it was your father who starts reading for yeah. Beverly at first. And I I did a play with him in Rainbow. I did one or two plays with him a in couple, Rainbow yeah. over the years. Great man. And I I it just seemed like it was gonna be boring. And as soon as he's <laughs> done with his scene, and they go into this little musical number, and they take the stands away, and then the set start, uh, the set starts forming on stage. Blew my mind. That was Anne Marie's. Uh, I'm sure it was. Scene, I don't yeah. think Joe can come up with something. No, it was like not that. me at all. That was all Anne Marie. <laughs> it was so amazing, and I. Well, I'm glad to hear that because that's exactly the effect that she wanted in that moment. That of oh my god, this is gonna be boring. Oh no, it's a different thing altogether. <laughs> yeah, it's a three hour play, and I was like, I'm gonna let the audience think that I'm going to read to them for three hours. <laughs> I thought you were reading my mind. That's exactly what I was thinking, but in Spanish. <laughs> but then you were involved in, in Ghost of Lote Brava. So I knew going in that it wasn't going to be just a typical stage yeah. reading. I knew yeah. it, was going, it was going to be good. And also, too, uh, the, I, I've never been on stage while not not having to be on stage, meaning we were at the black box, we didn't have wings or backstage. Right, to exit. The smaller theater at the yeah, library. So we would do our scenes, and then we'd sit there and just patiently wait for our scenes. And I I don't like uh, I feel like it breaks it breaks the illusion to the audience member that you're doing your character, doing your scene, and then you have to go back and sit down. Now they don't see the character. Now they see the actor. I and that was one of my fears. I don't like to mingle before a show because I think it bring breaks the illusion for the audience. But for some reason, I'm getting a little more comfortable with that, and I help. It helps bring out the character, and it lures the people into the show. Oh, sure. From the beginning, which I didn't know. I didn't. I think it was just me being uh, nervous. That's what it was, hiding behind the curtain. Well, it's easy. It's easy too to exclude the audience from the whole experience, right? To suggest that somehow the actors are here, the yes. audience is there, and never the twain shall meet. Right, and and there's certainly you know the act, the audience changes every night. They're certainly a part of the I experience. I wish they would remember that those are actual real people on stage, and that they're not holograms or fantasy, because uh, it creates a certain level of respect to know that there is a live person on stage laying it on the line. That that person is your neighbor, and if you realize that as an audience member, then you're more respectful. Well, and also I think to remember that those are real people out in the audience as well, and that you're not just rehearsing this in an empty room, you know, with a mirror on one wall and a director sitting on the other wall. You have a room full of people who hopefully are engaged and are are, are, are sharing the story that you're telling them. I think that's an important part of it, too. We all have responsibilities when we walk into the theater, whether we're on stage or whether we're in the audience. Mm-hmm. You know, that we're, we're all a part it's of It's a the, whole collective and I understand that now I, I in theater theater is my first passion uh, I've done some film work some uh, TV TV work it's just completely different the, yeah. the, they, they love you or hate you then and there the, the feedback and the energy you get from somebody who's sitting right there in front of you enjoying the show or squirming in their seats which which reminds me a Pug Fit has some of the best seats out there to watch a show <laughs> I'm, just very I'm just saying <laughs> I, I have family members who came out to the last show who've never seen theater and and I told them you guys are lucky that y- your butts were nice and comfy because the public <laughs> has some of the best seats out there. That's and funny. That's what you're focused on. That's funny. Well, yeah. We can thank the donor for that. We're very proud thank of her. She was very upset with our seats. Donor. Thank you <laughs> so much. And, and earlier we were talking about one of the things we talked a year ago. We mentioned how um, 
and I know we can relate, our family doesn't go and see theater. If they've seen something, it's be- because we were a part well, of it. Well, why is that? Let's talk about that a little bit. Why Why does your family go see theater? You have a love for it. Why has that translated to to the rest of your family? Uh, well, I, I, it, it's your upbringing, first of all. Um, I think also, too, is shyness. There's a lot of shyness. Really? I was in high school trying to do theater, and I was so scared I was doing tech theater. Huh. I, I didn't do my first play until I was 29 years old, yeah. I believe. I, I did it with the Rainbow Company. So when it says that I started with Rainbow Company, it doesn't mean I was a kid actor. <laughs> it doesn't mean I, because they've been around for a long, long time. Yeah, 45, just, 50 years. Yeah, and it just means that uh, they gave me, uh, Brian Crawl gave me the first opportunity. Thank you, Brian. He gave me the first, he saw something in me, or he just needed a male actor, <laughs> but I, I, I have no, I don't, I'm not really sure why. Uh, I think we're trying to break that from, we're, we're trying to trailblaze and being the first generation born people that are sending that culture into our family. Well, you're kind of nodding again, Danielle. Is that, is that a familiar theme with you too? Or do you come from a, a family that, that watches a lot of theater or not? No, no. So this, that topic is actually really, really close to my heart and has been from the moment we first read the play. And I feel personally that the reason theater hasn't played a large component in my own family and in the generations before me um, is because we haven't really had the luxury of exploring the arts and that the arts are viewed as a luxury rather than a necessity, which is what I view it as now. It's been viewed as, you know, something that distracts you from just working and finding stability, especially since, you know, when you're first generation and your parents are immigrants, you don't have room to enjoy yourself, really. And so once you are first generation, you feel like you have to carry that level of commitment to working and just making money for your future generations because your parents did that for you. And so when I told my family that I was going to devote so much time uh, to this project, and for a long time, I actually kept it a secret. I kept it a secret for maybe up until I decided to go to UNLV for theater that I had a passion for theater and for acting because, well, that would just be met with something as silly, you know, maybe a a literal dream. So when I told them that I was going to school for this and that I was going to put money into it, everybody kind of viewed it as sort of a waste of time and money. And then once they started to understand the process through my eyes, they started to support me. And so this won't be special for me just because it'll be my first time on stage, but it'll be special because it'll be my mother's first time going to a place she's never been to one. Holy cow. My sister will be able to now have a role model that's exploring the arts and just being able to talk to my mom after rehearsals and tell her about the magic we've created and the the juiciness of, that is rehearsal oh very juicy it's so juicy so you know she gets so excited just telling her and being able to call my grandma on Juarez and being like mommy you know I'm doing a play for about about it so you know it's right across Juarez and you know it's infecting them with that desire of the arts it's sort of rejuvenating the the importance of arts in them Gigi this is important you're gonna get props you can need props now. This is way too important to, <laughs> to not have props. This is too. Uh, <laughs> yeah, really? No, she don't. She don't need no stinking props. <laughs> it, it's, it, it, it'll add two weeks to your rehearsal so process. Who, so, who, so who's so who's coming now, Danielle? Who do we have the, the, the who do I have to look forward to meeting uh, over these next uh, few weeks? When we have these two two performances. Well, most of my family is still on the other side of the border. They're in Juarez, but my mother and my father. Maybe my sister, maybe not my sister because she's 12. Huh? And so oh, this yeah. play, maybe, you know. A little yes, mature. We, we yeah, a little mature. mature. Oh, get her started young. I yeah. say bring her. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, but I certainly have been at least with telling them about my experiences. She's been well, I want to say, too, and this is all credit uh, to, to, to Anne-Marie, 
um, is that one of the things that that a public fit takes very seriously, and the reason that we've upped the budgets for the readings, and as TG has pointed out, you know, costume design, some sets, and 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 that sort of work, and exactly. still offer them for free uh, at, at the library, is hoping to reach some of those audience members who might just be financially unavailable to come to see theater, and still affect them in a way that is a legitimate theater experience. And I would continuing to do that, and continuing to put resources and value and commitment into into the readings, I think is is really important. It was one of the things that that you know we did an interview with Lauren Gunderson um, uh, a couple of years ago um, right around the pandemic and we were asking about the future of theater and she says well you have to talk to the people that aren't there you have to talk to the people that aren't coming in order to find out why and so that became very clear to us that part of it was financial and just part of it was you know an, an opportunity to see things that really spoke to them so I'm glad to hear you say that Dan- yeah many people uh, are trying to survive and so they're not thinking about theater but the way you spoke about it is it is a matter of survival in order to be part of the theater, right? That in order to have quality of life, you have to explore your creative side, um, which is something that should be open to all people. Uh, all it's not nurtured in us as we're young, though. Yeah. The, the, we're the generation that, that, that starts nurturing, nurturing that towards our kids, that it's important for our soul that we're not seeing it as uh, making a living. Making a living by living, your soul is living, that's a whole different thing. We interpret it like that. I came, I, when I started doing theater, uh, I, I would miss rehearsals because I got influenced by some friends. They would say, hey, what are you doing? Let's come have a beer. I go, I got rehearsals. They're like, what the fuck is that? What's a rehearsal? And then they would say, that's gay. You know, are you gay? You know, theater's gay, right? So, and even just recently, last Saturday night, we had rehearsals and it felt so great to be rehearsing on a Saturday night instead of drinking tequila and corona. I mean, I drank it after rehearsal, but but it was so great. And I think it's so what what, what Daniela is saying too. They don't see themselves on stage. Maybe they it's going to be the first time they see people that look like them that share stories that they can share that are similar. Maybe that that's a little intriguing and appealing for them to continue. Uh, or- and I, yeah, I hope it's infectious. I hope it's something that infects them in a way where they want to see uh, even more stories and stories perhaps outside of their their experience yes. and really expand you know, whatever horizon is there for them. Wow, I'm just blown away by this conversation. I'd like to expand <laughs> the uh, horizons of, um, of people who come to the theater a lot equally. Yeah, um, because that's I, a good point. I think at first... They'll think, oh, am I? Can I understand this play? Can I relate to this play? And I hope that by the end, they recognize that it, it's a it's a family drama. Well, and there's a lot there. It's family. Yeah. It's it's sexuality, homophobia, the notion of illegal in quotes. The the you know Jose talked to the the elusive American uh, dream, um, the nature of disability. It, it, there's a lot packed into this. Exactly. Play. What did you guys say beforehand? You said there's two fight sequences, there's two sex scenes, and, and there's two different kiss scenes. Yeah. <laughs> there's two sex scenes, three kisses, French fries, and a Coke. Yeah. <laughs> and it has. <laughs> you promised a taco gonna, truck. What are you talking and, about? And, and cussing in two languages. Oh. oh. Okay. All right. Great marketing. So those 12-year-olds in the audience who want to come out and expand their cursing vocabulary, this is the perfect play for you as as well. Uh, I'm We're sure really going to pull sure, some people in for this I'm sure one. they've heard worse at home with, <laughs> with an uncle or grandpa or something. Well, I, I thank you guys so much for coming in and chatting, not just about the play. I, we talked a little bit about the play, but just talking about your experience and and, and, and your perspective on, on, on theater. Um, writ large I, I, I really appreciate it thank you guys for coming I love these I love these uh, uh, conversations but that's gonna I think put uh, BTB53 in the in the can I want to thank again uh, Gigi and Jose and Daniela for, for giving us the inside scoop on Ottavio Solis's Lydia it, it, you know it, it's plays like this that really keep the conversations alive and uh, you know here at A Public Fit we are all about the conversation We hope you are too. You can help continue the conversation by not just subscribing, but also by throwing us a quick uh, review or a one-click rating. Your feedback is essential in guaranteeing that we deliver the topics and interviews that interest you the most. Or if you prefer, you can get in in touch with us through email at behindthebuzz at apublicfit.org with each and every new thing uh, that we produce And we've just discovered that today as well. We just keep discovering that there is so much to talk about. 
Behind the Buzz is a product of a public fit theater company. It is directed by Anne-Marie Preth and me, Joe Coogan, and is recorded, mixed, and edited by the multifaceted Diane Walton. <laughs>